0: Hey there! Thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you find this episode to be both challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's message from Pastor Brian Carroll, entitled Good for Nothing, from Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. Kids are so excited, Uh, man! They come running across, and and uh, there's a part of me I'll tell you this: there's a part of me that misses those few moments during the worship service uh, when they used to come down and gather kind of up here. And and we started doing that when we first started meeting coming out of of COVID. Y'all remember that when that happened a while ago? Um, And we knew when we started it that it would outgrow itself. Like like we knew. We said there's going to come a point to where there's too many. Uh, and then Pastor Jacobs' kids got in there, and like, I mean, it, and I mean, <laughs> he's like, I can't preach to, to these kids while I'm, I'm trying to parent my own kid. And It's like, okay, this, this isn't working. And so we said, okay, we'll we'll just uh, we'll 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 skip that. So that, uh, and several parents were like, thank you for taking my child out of the opportunity to embarrass us in front of the whole church. Uh, and so I feel you, um, I absolutely do. Um, but I won't lie, I, I sort of miss having a couple minutes to spend with the kids on Sunday mornings. It was, it was fun. And, uh, and, um, but doing that kids' time invariably meant that there would be a scramble every Sunday morning to come up with some sort of an object lesson. Because that's the only way to do a kid's time. I mean, you have to have some sort of an object lesson to teach the children. That's the only way they can learn, right? I mean, you have to do it that way. Um, and so it, having that object lesson, parent, I mean, grownups do, they like object lessons too. But it gives them something to focus on to, to help sort of convey biblical truth. And the hope is that whenever they see that object get used, that they recall something of what you taught them on that particular day. And sometimes it worked. But there was one Sunday, <laughs> well, no pun intended, it backfired, and you'll understand that in a moment. Uh, several years ago, I think it was 2009 or 10, uh, Samantha could correct me, but the VBS theme that year was based on uh, the Australian Outback. Uh, Some of y'all remember Boomerang Express, and if I just planted that VBS earworm in your head, you are welcome for that. Um, And I had some friends who had traveled to Australia, and they brought me back a really, really cool gift, an authentic Australian didgeridoo. A didgerahoo. like So, if you don't know what that is, that's that wind instrument that's played by the Aborigines. It kind of has that long, droning low sound. Um, and it's kind of cool. Um, and just to, just trivia, because I I can tell you this, it may never have any meaning to you, that the Aborigines are able to play that thing steadily for, for minutes on end because they got this way of, it's called circular breathing. They breathe in through their nose and they keep pressure on their mouth and they're able to keep that thing sounding uh, for really as long as they want. And I would play this thing during vacation Bible school just to add some authenticity to the theme. Well, truth be told, there's not much to do with... An, Australian didgeridoo outside of an Australian-themed vacation Bible school. Uh, it served me no purpose beyond VBS that day because Foster has never once asked me to play it in any of his productions that we've had here uh, at church. I mean, I-, I can hear it in a Christmas presentation, just uh, uh, Christmas around the world. Uh, you know, I don't know, I, but never once has he asked me to play it in worship. So it's still in my office, and it's still sitting on my shelf uh, for when I ever need to pull it out for an object lesson, except I probably never will again. There was one Sunday morning I decided that I was going to show off my authentic Australian didgeridoo to the children. And I thought, man, they're going to love this. They've never seen anything like this before. And, so, and it unfolded exactly as you imagine. I sit down and the children gather around, and I've got this really cool musical instrument that's got all these designs and things and drawings and things on it. And I decided that I was going to play this thing and then communicate the biblical truth that was emphasized by playing this thing. And I'll be honest, I don't know what the biblical truth was because, uh, because it, it went downhill quickly. So I play the thing, I let the sound sort of carry on for a few seconds, I take it away from my mouth and before I can say one more thing, one of the more outspoken young men in the group starts laughing, pointing at the end of the didgeridoo and he declares at the top of his lungs in front of the whole church, "Ooh, it tooted! (laughs) I'm not afraid to admit defeat when it rears its ugly head. And in that moment, I knew I had lost total control. There was no biblical truths that were going to be communicated to the children that day. And so we prayed, and I sent them on to kids' church, and I promised that I would never play a didgeridoo in front of small children ever, ever again. You know, one of the interesting things about the prophets is that God asks them on occasion to use object lessons to convey spiritual truths, just like we would with children. I mean, you think about the prophet Hosea, his life was an object lesson. God told the prophet to to marry what, what we'll call a very unfaithful woman. And the back and forth of Hosea pursuing this woman served as a picture of God's faithful pursuit of his people in spite of their ongoing rejection of him. He even was called to name his children as an object lesson to convey spiritual truth. So the children's names carried significance. Ezekiel, if you you want object lessons, Ezekiel is like the master of object lessons, except they're not very appropriate for children's worship. Uh, in fact, God asks Ezekiel to, to act out a protracted series of object lessons. He's supposed to build like, a, like a, a scale model of Jerusalem, not with Legos, but like they didn't have Legos then, but like with, with the building materials they had. And he was supposed to reenact a whole little miniature siege of the city of Jerusalem using, this, uh, using, using scale model things. He was asked to spend, and this is crazy to me. He was asked to spend more than a year of his ministry physically laying on his side, preaching against the model of Jerusalem. And so, and there's, there's questions like, did he lay on his side the whole time? Probably not. Uh, but, but like, there were days he would spend on his side preaching. And I don't know how you lay on your side and preach, but I guess if you're preaching against the scale model of Jerusalem, maybe that's easier. I don't know, but don't anticipate me laying on my side preaching anytime soon. I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, and doing, while he's doing it, he he's supposed to be eating, maybe you've heard of Ezekiel bread. Like that's something that, that they, they try to sell you in the grocery store to make you think that you're getting something good. But if you read the recipe for Ezekiel bread, it wasn't very good. Uh, as a matter of fact, what they put in Ezekiel, like the recipe God gave Ezekiel was, was disgusting. It was, called, it was called siege food because it was what they could scrape together during a siege, which I can promise you they're not eating gourmet food during a siege. And God tells him to, to bake his bread over cow manure. And that's an improvement because the first thing God said is to use human. Uh, to bake the bread with. Ezekiel's like, God, really? And God says, okay, I'll let you use cow manure. And so again, we live out in the country and I know cow manure is normal for us, but we don't really cook over it. Um, And Ezekiel's man, it could go on. Well, Jeremiah gets in the object lessons uh, picture too, and and he's told to use some very elaborate object lessons. We'll cover them as we get to them. We're in chapter 13 today. See, I told you I was going to speed things up a little bit. And he uses an elaborate object lesson to convey spiritual truth. I want to unpack that a little bit today as we continue to reinforce these themes of Jeremiah's teaching. So I'm going to be in Jeremiah chapter 13 beginning in verse 1 today. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read the words here from Jeremiah chapter 13 verses 1 through 11. Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time Take the loincloth that you bought, which is around your waist, arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. And the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for object lessons that maybe for us are lost in time and space, but still are very relevant for us as we seek to walk with you in faithfulness today. Uh, Bless the teaching and preaching of your word now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I'll say this. If you are scratching your head as a result of reading chapter 13, verses 1 through 11, you're probably in good company because this is an obscure teaching. This is an obscure text that we are encountering today, but it's an important one. What happens here is Jeremiah is given instructions to go shopping, and, and well, that's a good start if the Lord says, hey, I want you to go on a shopping trip. There are some of y'all who say, sign me up, Lord, I'll be glad to go shopping. So Jeremiah goes shopping for the glory of God, and he is to buy a very valuable piece of clothing. It's a linen loincloth, and that's an odd purchase, uh, just, to, just to make a, a big production about it. This is an odd purchase. Um, because I'll tell you what, I see the word loincloth and I'm reminded of Adam and Eve's miserable attempt to cover themselves after the fall by making loincloths out of leaves. And, and I'll, I read this and I think this is probably not something that, that should be worn in public. Jeremiah, what, what's going on here? Why would you wear something like this in public? This doesn't sound appropriate, especially for a prophet. I mean, you got the word of the Lord to teach. You don't need that kind of attention. Fortunately, loincloth technology had improved considerably since the time of Adam and Eve's fig leaf failure. And in Jeremiah's time, this garment that is described here was probably much more like a kilt. And so we're familiar with that. You see people wearing kilts out and about every once in a while now, which is always interesting. I want to know the story. Like, why are you wearing a kilt? Are you really Scottish? I don't know. Um, But it would have been very common, among the population of Judah in the time. It was a common garment that would have been worn among those men. But one of the things that stands out, and God makes it very specific here, that this is a linen Garment. This is a linen garment. That means that it's an expensive garment. It's not made the way common fabrics were made. Linen is, of course, made from the flax plant, and it was an expensive garment. In in Jewish lore and Jewish culture, it was a fabric that was almost exclusively used for the wealthiest people in society. It was the fabric that was used to make the priestly garments. It wasn't something that's made its way into everyday life. They used linens to wrap the mummies in Egypt. That's where we encounter linen in the ancient Ancient world, but the point is that it was valuable, and so for Jeremiah to wear this garment was him. He was putting on something very, very expensive. It's like if you bought some of those overpriced Donald Trump sneakers and you wore those into church, we'd all gonna judge you for wearing those into church. They're like four hundred dollars for a pair of shoes. Like where'd you, where'd you get those for? I mean, it was something that's very expensive. People noticed. They paid attention. But in Jeremiah's lesson here, the garment represents the people of Judah. God says it in chapter 13, verse 11, for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. The intention is very clear. The object lesson that is being communicated here is that God chose Israel, God chose Judah, of course, as his people, and he entered into a covenant relationship with them. He was to be their God. They were to be his people. They were to be exclusively committed to him and no other. And just like Jeremiah's garment was a valuable article of clothing, the people of Israel and Judah were valuable to the Lord. They were valuable to him. In three different places, in fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God actually says this about his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, God chose Israel as his treasured possession. Well, that says something about the value that God placed upon his people. He saw them as a priceless treasured possession. That's why he fought for them so so much over the course of so many generations because he saw them as a treasured, treasured people. But in spite of the fact that they were treasured by God, they strayed. Over and over and over again they strayed in spite of many varied and repeated warnings, in spite of sermons preached by prophets and object lessons taught by prophets, they strayed over and over and over again. Well, because this linen garment represented the people of Judah, Jeremiah doesn't get to enjoy his purchase very long. He's called to take a lengthy journey to act out the next step of the lesson. God tells Jeremiah to take his brand new, unwashed, expensive garment, and he tells him to bury it. So there went your shopping trip. If you were excited about going shopping, God said, take what you bought and go bury it. And he tells them to go bury it in a particular place. He tells them to bury it beside the Euphrates River. And again, sometimes we throw out biblical geography. We say, I don't know where that is, and so it doesn't matter. But here's a place where biblical geography matters because the Euphrates is in Babylon. And that's exactly where the threat that is coming to the nation of Judah is coming from. They're coming from Babylon. So Jeremiah has to go to Babylon with his garment. He is called to go bury it by the Euphrates River in Babylon. This was Just a hop and a skip and a jump across the street to bury the garment under a rock in the park. Jeremiah is called to take a multi week journey somewhere around 300 miles to act out this next step in the lesson. That's a long way to go. I mean, to walk 300 miles, that's going to take you more than a day or two. So Jeremiah goes on this journey. He acts out the next step of the lesson. He buries the garment, and he returns home and basically goes on about his ministry. We don't get what happens next, Uh, there's, there's, There's time that passes, and he's called to go about his work without much regard for what he buried in Babylon. But God's got a long memory. God doesn't forget. And God actually comes back to Jeremiah and says, hey, I'm not finished yet. There's an object lesson that you're still working on. And so we're told many days pass, which implies there's a lengthy season in Jeremiah's ministry that passes. And Jeremiah is called yet again to go back to the hiding place in the Euphrates River in Babylon to dig up the garment that he buried a long, long time ago. Man, that's a, that's a lot of work for, for this object lesson. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i trying to think of object lessons that we've done with kids, and, and like the, the biggest work was like going to Dollar General and getting a bag of candy. Like, that, was, that, was, that, was the, that was the work that we had to do. But here's Jeremiah. He spends weeks going to bury it, He spends weeks going back to get it. And what does he find? Well, he finds exactly what you would expect if you've had a linen garment buried in the the rocks there by the Euphrates River with the flooding of the river and the, the wear and tear of nature and the elements taking their toll. That luxurious garment was ruined, fit for nothing. All of this for God to make a point. And the point God makes, he spells it out for us here, The first thing God says is that he is going to spoil the people in Babylon. This shouldn't have been surprising at all. They have seen it coming. It's been warned over and over again. They knew that this was happening. They've been warned by the prophet. They were eyewitnesses even to the demise of their sister Israel. They thought they were spared from these threats because they had the temple and all of the stuff that goes with the temple. That's where God lived, God's not going to allow that to be destroyed. How could anything bad happen to the house that God lives in? But it does happen. The people are sent into exile to the very place that Jeremiah buried the garment. And God's judgment against the people lasted for 70 years, long enough for an entire generation of Jews to perish away from their home, away from their country. And in the process of exiling the nation, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, so that all the things that Israel had or that Judah had put their hope in was destroyed by the king of Babylon. Over the course of 70 years. Lots happens over the course of seventy years. Think about what's happened in our lives in the last seventy years. Uh, things are a little different now than they were back in what, the fifty, nineteen fifty, somewhere around there. A uh, lot's happened since then. So over the course of seventy years, the power structure of the world has changed. Babylon's been replaced by Persia. Things are different. God spoils Judah by exiling them for a generation in Babylon. But secondly, God says that the people are good for nothing, and that's insulting. Your band's called "You're Good for Nothing." I mean, maybe you've had some employees or people that you've worked for like they're good for nothing. This is good for, God says they're good for nothing. They're, 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 they, they no longer listen in, in verse 10. They're, they're harsh words, but they're true words. Jeremiah's garment's ruined. It's not good for anything anymore. He certainly can't wear it anymore. That luxurious, valuable garment that he was so proud of, he couldn't wear that anymore because the elements ruined it. It was threadbone after spending weeks and weeks and weeks in the ground. The river had an irreversible impact on the garment. That luxurious, priestly garment wasn't fit to wear. Which means it was good for absolutely nothing. It's not like in your dad's garage where when you know an old towel or old, old shirt gets, uh, gets too, too, too rough to wear, it gets cut up and turned into a shop rag. It wasn't even good for that? They didn't have much use for shop rags either. But that's what God thinks about sin. God doesn't sugarcoat sin. He doesn't try to clean up its image. God calls sin what it is. And God says that the people committed a whole slew of offenses. That rendered them unfit. He says they refused to hear God's words. God had given them his word in various means. He had given them a large portion of what we now call the Old Testament. They had the ministry of the prophets who boldly declared, This is the word of God for generation after generation after generation, but they didn't listen. They refused to hear what God had to say. They didn't want to listen. He says that they stubbornly followed their own hearts. You know, the pattern in Scripture of people following their own hearts is catastrophic. We hear that today. People say, you just need to follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. That's that's bad news. Follow God's heart because your heart's going to lead you astray. God's heart's going to get you in the right direction. The pattern of people following their hearts in Scripture is catastrophic. It's perhaps the worst thing you can do. Later on in chapter 18, they actually flaunt this before the Lord. God warns them again and again about pending judgment, offers them all opportunity to turn from evil, and they declare to God that this is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and, and we will act, everyone, according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart. They're like, I don't want to do what God says. I want to do what my heart says. Man, that's bad news. Don't follow your heart. Follow God's. They recognize the evil in their intentions. They recognize the stubbornness in their own hearts, and they've come to embrace it. They're like, this is who we are. We can't change. That's exactly, uh, it's so heartbreaking that they're exactly right. God says in Jeremiah 13, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil, meaning you're right. You're not gonna change your own heart. You can't. He says they've gone after other gods to worship and serve them. They've embraced gross idolatry. They found gods they like better. And these false gods aren't as demanding. They don't have expectations of holiness and righteousness. It's not quite as stringent. They recognize that their false gods allow them to engage in rampant promiscuity. They recognize that their false gods allow them to, to get rid of the children that actually are a result of that promiscuous behavior. Christians, I hope you hear this. You wonder what's wrong with our culture today? I would argue that our cultures are identical, that what we see from the people in Jeremiah's day is very much the same as what we see in our day today. The only difference between the two cultures is we've got technology and they don't. Because we today have the technology to get rid of the children before they're ever born. And we live in a world where it's actually celebrated and fought for. Why do you think that our society so vehemently fights for the legitimization of every form of deviancy and the right to murder unborn children? Why do you think that we live in a culture that's actively fighting for the right to do those things? Listen, it's the same reason that Judah and Jerusalem rejected the Lord and went after other gods. We're doing battle with the exact same demons today. I believe wholeheartedly that there is a demon named Baal and a demon named Asherah and a demon named Molech that's alive today that's influencing these behaviors that we are fighting against even to this day. That explains why there's so many similarities because it's the same enemy that we're doing battle with. And I know we don't like to talk about supernatural things We start talking about demons and angels and spiritual warfare and people get a little nervous because all that spiritual warfare stuff just gives us the creeps. But I'm convinced that these exact demons are still pulling levers of influence today as they were in 600 BC. And we're still falling for it. We as Christians keep looking for political solutions for spiritual problems and we wonder why it never seems to get better. Man, we rejoice when Roe versus Wade got overturned. We're like, man, this is great. Roe versus Wade is gone. We will actually see life defended. And it's gotten worse in so many places since Roe versus Wade was overturned. We're like, well, but we, won a, we won that political battle. Yeah, but it's the spiritual one that's causing us the problem, not the political one. The reason is simple. We don't have a law problem. Listen to me. We have a heart problem. We live in a world where people are encouraged to follow their heart. And it ends up leading them astray time after time after time. The only solution to the heart problem is found in the gospel. Thirdly, Israel missed God's best and went after lesser things. Verse 11 talks about this. God paints a picture, a beautiful picture, of what might have been for the nation. He describes the nation that clings to him, just like that loincloth around the waist. It's hard to imagine clinging closer to someone than a garment that they would wear around their waist. Like, I've got this this blazer on, and it would not be difficult for someone to remove this blazer. Like, they could even take it from me with force without causing me much hurt, without much pain. It'd be very difficult to, to remove something that's got a waistband. Like, it's attached. It's gonna be hard to get that without a fight. And so this picture is something that's clinging closely, that goes where the wearer goes, that that does what the wearer does. When you move, it moves. And God said that was the picture that he had for his people where they would be clinging so closely to him that where he went, they went. That's the picture that God is painting. And they would cling to him as tightly as that garment clings to the waist of its wearer. And then God lists off the benefits that that kind of relationship would have. But with each of these benefits... We actually see how God's judgment tears down each of these things. He says that they might be a people. The first thing in verse 11, they might be a people. It points to their citizenship, their their identity, their national identity. In 586, though, there was no citizenship. They were captives in Babylon. They didn't have any of the benefits and privileges of being a citizen. And even when they returned, the nation that they knew was destroyed and had to be rebuilt from scratch. Their citizenship was affected in God's judgment. He says that they might be a name. This points to their reputation. Israel was to be a nation that everyone knew, but that reputation was not because they were so great. It was because God was so great, and their reputation was to be a light shining to the nations. They would recognize that the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, he is the God above all gods. He is the God that is worthy of our our worship and our our service. In Israel's greatest days, you, you saw the the pictures of that in the early reign of King Solomon as the, the nation of Israel was built in, in, in magnificent splendor. We were told people came from all over the world to learn from Solomon, to behold the splendor of all that God had done for the nation. The Proverbs seems to speak loudly here. Proverbs 14:34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In the exile, their reputation was destroyed. After the exile, Ezekiel describes it in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. Their reputation was demolished in God's judgment. He then says that they might be appraised. The people of Israel were the trustees of the true worship of the true and living God. There were no substitutes. The the, the prescription of worship that God gives to the nation was the right prescription of worship. There were imposters and there were imitators, but there were no substitutes. There was only one right way to worship the true and living God, and Israel knew what that, that method was. Psalm 137 reminds us through tears how the nation's worship was silenced. It says in verse uh, verse 1 of Psalm 137, "By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres." For there are captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing those songs that we love to hear. Sing, sing those worship songs that, that are so powerful to you. Sing those songs. And they said in verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The worship of God was even judged in this exile. Then the last thing he says, that they might be a Glory. This speaks to the idea of beauty and splendor I can't help but think about the temple. You read about the accounts of Solomon's construction of the temple, and it had to be an absolutely spectacular site situated at the highest point of Jerusalem, covered in gold and precious metals. The sun would reflect off of it, and it would be awe-inspiring. It would speak to the glory and splendor of the one who, whose presence dwelled there. And the word that so often comes to mind when I think about it is resplendent. We don't think of things that are resplendent anymore, but this picture of the temple was something that was resplendent. And even that was was destroyed, reduced to rubble, robbed of its treasure. There's a scene from the book of Ezra that really galvanizes this. Many of the Jews are returning from the exile that was offered to them by the Persian king Cyrus led by Zerubbabel and Ezra. They began to rebuild the temple. When they rebuild the foundation, they gathered together to have a time of dedication and celebration, and there were many who rejoiced at the accomplishment. But Ezra records this in chapter 3, verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites... Heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. They saw that what was replacing it was nowhere near as glorious as what was torn down, and it was devastating for those who had lived through that time. There wasn't much cause for rejoicing for them. The glory just wasn't the same. And Jeremiah sums all this up, though, with one simple statement one simple rebuke, they wouldn't listen. You had all this at your fingertips. You had all these promises, all this this available to you, but you just wouldn't listen. You know, sometimes we as Christians don't get nearly as excited about studying the Old Testament as we do the New. Some of the ideas and words and stuff that's communicated to us is so often lost because we don't understand the context or don't take the time to study it. I'm gonna tell you that one of the most rewarding things about studying texts like this one is the joy of looking for and finding Jesus because he's not far off. He's not hiding from us. And most of the time, he's right there in plain sight for us. And lo and behold, like any good object lesson does, we have one here, that points us to Jesus. God said about the people, the people of Israel, Judah, that they might be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. And it turns out that in Christ, we actually see all of these things coming to fruition because in Christ, all of God's promises are yes in him. Listen to this, that we might be a people, As the church today, our first allegiance is not to the nation of our earthly citizenry, but to the kingdom of our God. In Christ, we have a brand new citizenship. Now, that doesn't mean we no longer participate in the the kingdom of this world. It doesn't mean that we're not good citizens of this side of eternity. But it does mean that our primary allegiance is not to the red, white, and blue, but to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will go on forever, but the nations of this earth will fall. All the nations of this earth will bow down before the king of kings, but those who are in Christ, we will serve and come alongside of him forever. We are a new nation, a new citizenry. We are part of the kingdom of God. God is building for himself a new nation, and that nation is made up from people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are a new people, a new citizenship. We look around at this broken world today, and we can see that there are nations that are teetering on the brink of collapse, We understand that today that there may come a day that we don't hear the nation Ukraine anymore because it becomes a part of Russia. But I can promise you that there are Christians in Ukraine whose identity is not tied to that nation but to the kingdom of God, and they will go on forever. It doesn't matter what happens to this kingdom or this country or this society. If you were in Christ, you were citizens of a greater king, a greater kingdom with a greater king. Secondly, he says that we might be a name. Listen to me, church. We gladly lay our reputations aside knowing the character of our king. We don't have to worry about our reputations anymore because we worship and serve the king of kings, the lord of lords, because our king has been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the Father. And as followers of Jesus, we are adopted into this family. We are given a new name as citizens and children of the king. Micah chapter 4 verse 5 says, For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We wear his name. And even though the nations around us may rage, and even though there may be countless enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we wear the name of our King because we are a new people that we might be a praise. The sacrifices of the temple have been replaced by a perfect sacrifice offered once and for all on the cross And you and I exist today as living sacrifices. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You today are a living sacrifice to God. And lastly, that we might be a glory. We have secured for us, church, a place of everlasting joy in the presence of our Savior and King. When our last breath is taken in this world, we look forward to our heavenly home where we shall behold the glory and splendor of God Almighty forever and ever and ever. We will see him in the fullness of his perfections. All we have to do is listen. If you're married, you understand that listening is different from hearing. (laughs) If you're a parent, you understand that listening is different from hearing. Because I'm a husband, and I hear really well. I don't listen very well. Hearing is the physical act. Hearing means my eardrum vibrates, and it jiggles those little bones in my ear, that jiggles a little nerve inside my ear that sends a little signal to my brain that says, hey, sound was just made. And that happens a lot. And sometimes I hear things that are, that are, I can't quite tell what it was. But my eardrum did its thing and the little bones did their thing and the nerve did its thing and my brain did its thing. I heard. Listening is different. Listening means that you hear with perception. It means that both two things have to happen: your eardrum does its thing, but your brain actually interprets the signal correctly, so that you can actually perceive. In Jeremiah, the sense here of listening is actually to heed. It takes listening one step further. It takes listening beyond just the physical act of hearing, beyond just the mental act of, of acknowledging, to the physical act of of doing what it says. Okay, So in in marriage, my wife can say, you need to empty the dishwasher. And if I only heard her, then I didn't quite understand what she said. If I listened to her, well, that means that I understood emptying the dishwasher. But if I hated what she said, that means that I actually did all those things and I emptied the dishwasher too. So, so there's a progression here. And what Jeremiah is saying here is you're supposed to listen. There is, this is hearing, listening, and heeding, doing something with an appropriate response. And I would plead with you today, you need to listen to the Lord. You need to heed what he says. Because in doing so, you get to be the beneficiary of all of his promises. But you have to do it his way. You have to follow his heart, not your own way, following your own heart. Because the only way we receive these promises of God is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you heed the word of the Lord today? Would you pray with me, please? <laughs> Father, I'm grateful for an object lesson that still cries out to us today and beckons us to heed the word of the Lord. Father, we live in a broken and perverse and corrupt generation. We know that around us there are enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel, who would like nothing more than to silence the preaching of your word and to distract your people from doing what you say. But Lord, I'm quite confident, Lord, that the same battles we're fighting today are spiritual battles being influenced by the same demons who simply changed their name as history has rolled on. And the answer for these battles is not our politics, it's not our elections. The answer for these battles is the gospel, the good news of Jesus that changes hearts and minds and makes us new creatures. And so I pray, Father, today that you will raise up a generation of Christians who are unashamed of the gospel who will preach the gospel, who will share the gospel, who will bear witness with their testimony to a lost and dying world, that their friends will know where they stand, that their friends will know who they are and whose they are as they identify as citizens of a greater kingdom and children of a greater king. Thank you, Father, for your word and the fact that it is ancient, But it still cries out to people today to listen, to heed the word of God. Father, I pray you move now in our midst. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Chat Valley, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. Of course, you are always welcome to join us in person. We worship together every Sunday morning at 1045. We are located at the foot of Lookout Mountain in beautiful Flintstone, Georgia. We are just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. Hope to see you soon.